Well, good morning. Thank you for that warm welcome. It's good to see you too. All right. Thank you, Tom. Takes a minute. It's the same thing every week. It's like I'm insane. I keep thinking you're going to welcome me back, but like, you know, no. Okay, so good to see you all. I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, let's go ahead and stand. We're going to read God's Word together. We do this every week. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Hear God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. So, Father, here we are this morning. We desire to meet you. We desire to know you. That this place is a place where we can belong, but this place is also a place where we can know you. Because something in our hearts cries out deeply that a kind, loving, benevolent creator would truly be present in our lives and in this world. Especially when we look at what's happened in our country yesterday in Charlottesville. When we see the, the white supremacists who have stood up, declared their racism, when we see those who have stood against that, even the image of the car running through the street and knocking people over, injuring them. And we see those things and we can't look away. We have to recognize it and realize there, there, right there is no mercy. And this morning we come in contact with a passage that says, blessed are the merciful. So this morning we're going to need your help that this goes beyond just words that we put together and thoughts that we say we buy into. We're going to need your help because we're going to need to walk away this morning more merciful than we've ever been before. And so I pray that you would be with me, you would help me, that you would let us see the text clearly for what it says in Jesus, that we'd walk away this morning with such a profound sense of who you are, of how you lived, that you weren't just an empty, an, an empty cloak you truly gave us a life to look at and model ours after. So give us the grace needed, we pray, please. Whatever would keep us from being here this morning that happened this past week or whatever is going to be before us this next week, those kind of things can pull us away from being present. And our presence is the best gift we can give you and one another. So help us be present, we pray, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I go into this morning's passage, um, this was just on my heart. 
I wanted to share it with you all. Last week, uh, there was actually a, a pastor, a, a senior pastor in town. He's on break sabbatical right now, and he decided to come worship with us. So I saw him, gave him a hug, and, and then this past weekend, we ended up talking. And he knows our story. He knows what's happened here at this church. And he said, it's nothing short of a miracle. It's nothing short of amazing and profound what's going on in your church right now, Robin. That I showed up Sunday morning, and I was expecting to see people not there, suspecting to see um, people really um, still broken over all the things that have happened um, in your congregation. And if you're new this morning, somebody can fill you in later on. But there's been plenty that's going on for us as a church. And he said, it's amazing to see people coming together and joyfully worshiping, that people want to be there, that we got to dedicate five babies last week that people were buying in more than ever before. And I found myself grateful, grateful for our leadership, um, grateful uh, for our elders, grateful for our deacons, grateful for our story group leaders. Um, you know, my job as a pastor here specifically is to be, uh, to be a directional pastor, to cast vision at a 30,000-foot level to say, hey, here's where we need to be going, and then for the elders to be able to discuss these things. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you have leaders if people don't really want to buy into what's being talked about. And so what I want to say is thank you. Thank you that you have, you have bought into what's happening here, that the gates of hell have not prevailed against this church. The gates of hell have not prevailed against this church. They have not prevailed against you. You make up the church. So thank you. You can now give yourself a warm round of applause. So this morning we are uh, still continuing with the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, we're talking through the Beatitudes. And we've titled this The, the Path of Jesus. And I just want to reflect as to why we're doing this series and why we're even calling it this. Because several months ago, we knew as leaders saying we need to look into the essentials of what makes the body the body. And that's when we went through the Apostles' Creed. And then, then we needed to go into now, let's just listen to Jesus and what He has to say. Because so many times we can make Jesus into this superfluous figure that shows up in history, who's born miraculously, and then dies sacrificially, and is raised, and then we kind of go, okay, well that's the life of Jesus, thank you. But that's not it. Because Jesus showed up and for three years plus had very specific teachings that he wanted to pass along to his followers. And these teachings make up his whole life of what he's about. It's important that we can look at these teachings and not just simply say, well, that's nice, and give kind of a hat tip to Jesus, good thoughts, but actually to investigate what this now means for us. You see, there's a path that Jesus is asking all of his people to follow at the end of the day, that he's not just an empty cloak, he's not just simply an unattainable ideal, but he is actually this Lord, this Messiah who beckons us to follow him as he walks a certain path. And he starts off this most, um, his magnum opus, if you will, teachings all together of this Sermon on the Mount all these collections of teachings, these things he had to say. 
And he starts off with what we now see as the Beatitudes. And we've talked about the Beatitudes as far as how to even look at when he says blessed are, blessed are. He uses this word blessed, makarios. And we've talked through that before, but I just want to reflect again because we're at the hump. Like we are four in, this is the fifth, we have four more to go. And I just want us to reflect for a second as to what he's trying to say to us. Because he shows up and he goes, I'm here to bring good news to you. Now, blessed are those. And what we've said before was that makarios means God is for you. I am with you, Jesus is saying. But there's even another way for us to really wrap our minds around it. And that is flourishing are those. Jonathan Pennington, he is a professor and scholar. He said simply, the, be- the Beatitudes are a vision for human flourishing. That's what the Beatitudes are. It's a vision for human flourishing. It's the way the world truly was meant to interact. And so Jesus is coming and saying, this is the way it was always meant to be. This isn't just something new. This is in the the fabric of this world woven into it. And I'm here to extract it out and show you this is how you're meant to interact. This This is how you're wired. That you are flourishing when you live in these ways. Now, we've talked about this, though. The Beatitudes are going to tell us two things. The first thing the Beatitudes are telling us is that this is for the people who are just naturally these ways at this point in life. Like he's not saying first and foremost, like blessed are you, flourished are you when you're poor, so now go and be poor so you can flourish. So if you're hearing this message and you're going, I'm not really poor, he's not saying to you, okay, well then go get yourself poor and then you'll flourish. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that if you're poor in this world, There's actually flourishing to that. Now, it's not just because you're without money, but it's because you're left without any other option to ever build your life and identity upon. So you actually, if you're poor and poor in spirit, there's an intuition you have to the kingdom that others who aren't poor or have yet to recognize how poor in spirit they are, get. You have a heads up before they do. It's it's a beautiful, wonderful, mind-boggling reality. He's first stepping up and saying, those who are this way, this is for you. You're flourishing. And we've used this before, but I want to look at it again. Scott McKnight, he said, the Beatitudes provide a divine perspective on the true people of God. And Jesus is the Lord Messiah who declares who these people are. They are people whose fabric is the interweaving of love of God, love of others, and love of self, and keep those three in mind because we'll come back to that. See, the kind of people who first get access to God's kingdom are the ones you would never think. That's what Jesus is saying. The kind of people who are going to get this are those that you have looked down upon or discarded in life. And so it was revolutionary for Jesus to start his whole campaign around what Simon and Garfunkel said, the sat on, spat on, and ratted on. There's another aspect to this as well, because it's not just those who naturally are this way or who are experiencing this in life, it's also the characteristics of what constitute God's kingdom, that these are the characteristics that constitute God's kingdom, 
that if you want to find yourself participating, now listen to me on this, if you want to find yourself participating in the kingdom of God, there are certain characteristics you'll find yourself living with. That over time, if you're really walking this out with him, you're going to find yourself more in these ways. Does that mean you're going to find yourself literally poor? Maybe. I don't know. But you're definitely going to at least find yourself poor in spirit. Are you going to find yourself hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Yeah, I think so. Are you going to find yourself meek and lowly? Absolutely. You see, Jesus, what he does is he proclaims that these kind of people are a part of his kingdom, and then he goes and lives it out himself. Jesus is poor. Like he has nowhere, he says, to lay his head. Jesus is lowly and meek. Jesus is constantly dealing with the tensions of the unrighteousness in this world that's actually presented against him. Jesus cries. He mourns over Jerusalem. He mourns over the sins of this world. This is a man who is in touch with the fabric of what this world was meant to interact with, these characteristics. And many, though, of us, much of Christianity over the last 2,000 years through enlightenment, you know, back in the third century when Constantine came into power, it really flipped what Christianity was all about up to that point. See, to that point, it was a bunch of people who were nomads, who truly were the subjugated, that weren't privileged, and then Constantine came in and made it into the world religion. And all of a sudden, those who are Christians, all of a sudden were privileged because of their religion. That's not necessarily saying that's wrong, it's just saying that's not how this was founded. So it's going to be very difficult for anyone who comes from more of a privileged background to intuitively get this at first as opposed to someone who comes from a subjugated and broken background. But he's saying to us, you still, though, can get a piece of it, and you still can find these characteristics in your life. But the problem is this. For many of us, Christianity has been dwindled down to simply getting saved and getting holy. But for Jesus, he's saying, if you just simply stay there, you're going to miss out. Because there's so much more than simply getting saved and getting holy. Y'all, getting saved and getting holy is important, all right? But there's more. And if we don't pay attention, we're going to miss out on all of this life that's meant for us here and now. And listen, you can walk away from the series and never try to live these things out, and you'll probably, like, we'll still see you in eternity, I'm guessing, but you're actually going to have more tears be wiped away because you weren't willing to simply humble yourself and say, maybe there's more to this than just my own worldview and how I was brought up. So this morning, we come to one of these beatitudes, one of these ways of flourishing that's going to take a little bit of mental, theological, linguistic gymnastics for us to really see what's happening. Because he says, flourishing are those who are merciful for they will receive mercy. So let's look at this. What is Jesus saying to us? Now, when we start with this, with this idea of merciful, for most of us, at least for me, if you're like me, I always grew up thinking merciful people are forgiving people, right? Merciful people are forgiving people. Now, that's not wrong, but it doesn't go all the way. Because if we're simply saying that blessed are those who forgive, for they will be forgiven, that kind of sounds like works righteousness to some degree, right? Like it kind of sounds like if you forgive, then you'll be forgiven, which simply goes against like all that Paul's trying to say to us about legal forensic righteousness 
See, Jamin laid that out last week, so you can go back and listen to the sermon, but there's different kinds of understanding righteousness. You're made righteous in Christ, but also you live righteously in Christ as well. And when that happens, righteousness is brought about in this world. But we can't simply just stay at a forensic legal righteousness that we are righteous in Christ. There's now a new reality to live out of. So it's not just simply saying, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. Although there is something mystical that seems to happen in our faith, Jesus talks about it, Paul talks about it, that there's power in your forgiveness to other people. We'll get to that. So it's not simply saying, blessed are those, flourishing are those who forgive because they'll be forgiven. So what is Jesus trying to say? Let me kind of bring some words on the screen for you to consider. The word for merciful here in the Greek is this word elimos. And this word means basically active compassion. That's what this word means, elimos, active compassion. Now, here's what's important. This word actually comes from another Greek word in its root, and that word is eleo. And eleo is the word to pity, that you pity. Not Mr. T, like I pity the fool, but like you pity someone. You pity a situation. So this word Greek, you have to remember something, we get our words today from Greek and Latin, right? The etymology of words. And so for this word, eleos, in Latin, they adopted the word pity in Latin which is elemosima. And this word, in, I'm not done yet, ready? This word in the Old English, now this is a difficult one, but in the Old English is elmes. And guess what word we get from elmes today? Alms. Alms for the poor. An ancient practice within the church of pitying people, actively having compassion for them, and giving them money, giving them time, giving them resources. Now, hold on a second. I just want to say something. I'm not trying to get across today that you need to be giving money or whatever it may be. Well, here's what I am going to say, that this word, merciful, that we see in the text has much more significance and weight than simply saying you forgive someone. That if you stop there, you're not going far enough. Because the word merciful actually is better thought of as generous. Flourishing are those who are generous. So then that begs the question, generous with what? Flourishing are those who are generous with what? I would say two things here. Because remember, Jesus is going to use all of these beatitudes and weave them into his teachings. Like if you want to know what Jesus is talking about, he's always pointing back to the beatitudes. So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to flip around in our Bibles and look at some things. But the two things I would say that constitute generosity, see, to be merciful is to be generous. One is this, generous with your resources, and the two, generous with your heart. So let's just look at some texts here, and let's first look at this idea of generous with your resources. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be at the story of the Good Samaritan. By the way, if you do not own a Bible or have a Bible, there are Bibles at the end of the row, and you're welcome to keep that. Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25, 
And what I'm going to do is just kind of skip around. And here, what I want to do is set up the context first. So Jesus is teaching, and a lawyer comes to him and says to him, teacher, rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? Now, this would be a very natural practice for rabbis. It was very rabbinical to do this. Every rabbi in town was trying to sum up Scripture. It was called midrash. You would, you would sum up and commentate on Scripture. So, how do you sum up all of the Old Testament, all of the laws, the Pentateuch, the Torah? And so, Jesus, as He does, he's, He rarely ever just answers questions. He has this whole thing where He likes to ask a question back. So, He says to the lawyer, what do you say? And the lawyer says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. That's good. But here's what's interesting. Look at verse 29. But He, the lawyer, desiring to justify Himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Like, who do I actually show this kind of love to? And Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance. Now, let's stop there. First off, Jesus is painting this story. He's saying there's a man, a Jewish man, who is on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And immediately, the lawyer, knowing his context, knowing the history, would have started like freaking out because he knows that this is a dangerous path. Matter of fact, the path itself was called the way of blood. It was the bloody path. I'm going to show you a, a picture here. And just, these are random people. I don't know who they are, all right? So if you recognize them and don't like them, I'm sorry. But just is trying to, like, to scale and show you this path, this, this bloody path that it was called by Jewish people. So you, this path was narrow. And as you can see, there's not a lot of room to walk on it. You could fall down the cliff either on, on one side. And what would happen is it was winding so there are people who could hide out. Regularly, thieves and robbers would hide out on this path and then attack people, kill people, and take their belongings. And it was just known that you didn't walk this path unless you had to. And you did it in day, and you did it in groups. So immediately Jesus says, there's a man, a Jewish man, walking the bloody path, and he's met by robbers who take everything from him, beat him down, and leave him for dead. And even as you look at this, I, I want to read from Dr. King in one of his great sermons. He actually references this. He goes, as soon as we, talking about he and his wife, got on that road, I said to her, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. And you know, it's possible, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they fell, felt that the man on the ground was merely faking, and he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for a quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, and the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? 
So we have a priest and a Levite. We basically have a pastor, a priest, and a Levite who was part of the tribe of priests. That means they were a good church person. So you have, a, you have a, a pastor and a good church person pass by this person on the road, and they just walk away. And listen, you would have to like, it's, as, it's about as wide as if you were to double the stage. So you've got to walk to the side to avoid a person laying on the other side. Like, matter of fact, they probably would have been against like the back of the, the mountain there. So you'd have to walk on the edge of the cliff, risking your own life to stay away from that person. And Jesus brings us up, and then he brings in a third person in this whole story, and he goes, a Samaritan was passing by. Now, this is important because Samaritans were looked down upon by Jewish people, mainly because Jewish people felt like Samaritans had desecrated what the original intent of worshiping Yahweh was all about. They had moved their worship from Jerusalem to another part of the land in Israel, They had intermingled with pagans in the area, and so a Jewish person looked at a Samaritan as, and this is very coarse to say it this way, but as a half-breed, and they looked at him as someone who was not fit to worship Yahweh. And they actually referred to Samaritans as dogs. And so Jesus then brings up, though, this good Samaritan who passes by this person on the road. And it says the Samaritan took him and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and gave the innkeeper two denarii, which would be one denarii is a day's wage. So he gave him two days' worth of money that he had earned and left it for this Jewish man. This Jewish man who more than likely had been racist towards the Samaritan and his people, had spoken ill against him had called them dogs, this Samaritan picks him up, cares for him, takes him to an end, and says, I'll be back, meaning I'll be back in a couple of days because I'm giving you two days' worth of money and to take care of him. Now, let's go back, though, to the end of this passage. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he says to the lawyer? And the lawyer says, the one, by the way, he doesn't even call the the good Samaritan. He doesn't call him a Samaritan. He could have said the Samaritan. He says the one. He can't even say the name, the word Samaritan. So he says to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. To be merciful is to be infinitely, without borders, pitying and actively compassionate for those in need. Let me say it again. This is what it means to be merciful. To be merciful is to be infinitely, without borders, pitying and actively compassionate for those in need. It's more than simply forgiving someone. It's being generous with your resources. Look in your bulletin to a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote as he's talking about this idea of being merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. These people, without possessions or power, these strangers on earth, these sinners, these followers of Jesus, have in their life with him renounced their own dignity, for they are merciful. 
As if their own needs and their own distress were not enough, they take upon themselves the distress and humiliation of others. They have an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wrong, the outcast, and all who are tortured with anxiety. They go out and seek all who are enmeshed in the toils of sin and guilt. No distress is too great, no sin too appalling for their pity. If a man falls into disgrace, the merciful will sacrifice their own honor to shield him and take his shame upon themselves. I'm going to read that last line again. Look at this. If a man falls into disgrace, if a man falls on the side of the road, bloodied up, if a person is so downtrodden and beaten by life through their sin, through their circumstances, through their brokenness, through their bad decisions, through all the insanity they've, they've decided to live in time and time again, the merciful, the merciful will sacrifice their own honor to shield him and take his shame upon themselves. Flourishing are the generous with their resources. But also flourishing are those who are generous with their heart. Because at the end of the day, you can't actually give of your life, your resources, without your heart also being attached to it. It's very important we see this next part. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is going to confront us and say, you can't just give money and walk away. You can't just give a few service hours and walk away. It's going to take more from you. You can't just simply look at someone who is broken and downtrodden, who is subjugated by the injustices of life and society, and then go back to your cozy corner and try to forget about them. He's going to show us something here in Matthew 18. Now, here's what's interesting. This chapter really just builds on itself. It starts with the disciples talking to one another at the beginning of 18, saying, who's the greatest? Like, who's going to be next to you, Jesus? Like, if you're Messiah and you're coming here to bring political reformation to now give Israel its freedom back, like, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be with you in this? And so then Jesus starts telling them these stories, and he goes into this parable of the lost sheep, that if, you, if one goes away, you leave the 99 to go get the one. He's trying to show them what love looks like. And then Peter, verse 21, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, before you look at his answer, what's your answer? One. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. How many times do you actually look at someone who has wronged you, and how many times do you need to forgive them? Now, I want to pause to say something, because I'm I'm hoping this doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it. Listen, if someone is abusive to you and harmful to you, of course you're going to be able to have to forgive them, but it doesn't mean you have to be with them, okay? We're not talking about this here, though. So, Jesus is saying to him, he goes, so Peter says, how many times should I forgive them? And then he gives his answer, seven times, that's a pretty good amount. Seven times is pretty good, all right? Like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me seven times, I'm an idiot, right? Like, that's kind of how it goes at the end of the day. Like, how naive and gullible do you have to be to keep forgiving someone? Let me ask you something, spouses. How many times has your spouse wronged you? 
More than seven, I would say. <laughs> Spoken from an elder. More than seven. <laughs> Don't worry, Becca. We all know how much Jamin's wronged us. All right. <laughs> so, like, it happens more than seven times. Like, not just in a day, but in a morning, okay? Like, it happens. And so, how many times do you forgive them? You know what? My limit is two times today. I will see you tomorrow. Some of you have tried that, and that's why, like, we don't want to, like, try to, like, listen and model your marriage. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason there. So, at the end of the day, it takes more than seven times, and Jesus comes back, and He says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, like, just kind of multiply that junk. Like, just keep going with it. Seven days completes the cycle, keep doing it again. And let's just keep going on and on and on and on. And then he gives him a story. Now, notice something, how he starts it off in verse 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared. The kingdom of heaven is like, this is what it means to be in the kingdom. And he goes into this story of a king who wished to settle his accounts with one of his civil servants. This wouldn't have been like a servant, how it's happened in America, right, in our history. This is a civil servant. This is someone who has power and position over others, all right, in the city, in the area, but who's also borrowed money from this king. Now, here's what he says to him. He goes, there's a civil servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, I'm not going to try to break down all the math for you because it's been done, but here's what I will say. It's roughly around $6 billion. Now, I don't know what someone is doing with $6 billion, and they haven't like multiplied that or at least gotten to another country, but somebody is foolish, right? They're trying to show hyperbole here. There's someone who's borrowed this infinite amount of money. You make your dollar amount in your head. For this passage, Jesus is saying six, around $6 billion. So there's this person who's borrowed all this money, and the king wants him to repay it. And then he comes and he begs the king, please, please forgive me. Please defer and delay this payment. And the king says, absolutely, I will. And the king gives this civil servant what? Mercy. Space. Generosity. And then, though, if you look down, we have verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is equivalently around, it's about $6,000. We have $6 billion and $6,000. Seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, what, for mercy, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had taken, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, summoned him the king, and said, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Should you not have mercy on other people because I had mercy with you? And then he says in his anger, away from me. He delivered him to the jailers until he should repay all of his debt. In verse 35, 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. It's a heart issue at the end of the day to be merciful. It can't simply just boil down and dwindle down to you taking the right actions around you. Some of us in this room are living still out of resentment, bitterness. You take the actions around you or seemingly take the actions that you're okay and you've you've been generous with your mercy, but your marriage is falling apart because you aren't willing to let something go. And you have a really good reason not to let it go. But you've become perhaps codependent in that relationship. You keep enabling that person and your whole life revolves around if they make their next right move or not. It could be a situation in life that's happening around you, your coworkers, you resent them, whatever it may be. The bitterness, as the saying goes, bitterness is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. Resentment is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. But wouldn't it just be simple if you could just give up resentment? Life would be so much easier if you could just give up the bitterness and actually be merciful from the heart. So then here's the question, why can't we be merciful from the heart? What is going on there that we can maybe give the words of forgiveness but not the actions, give the words of generosity but not the life, that we can say, okay, I'll give you a dollar on the street but I won't give you my time or give you access to my home or whatever it may be, I don't know. I'm not here to give you the lines of what it means to be merciful or not. You have your reasons to either do certain things or not. I'm fine with that, whatever. But at the end of the day, why aren't we as merciful, truly as merciful, as Jesus is saying here? See, when you look at the stories, who are you? Are are you the the priest? Are you the Levite? Levite? Are you the civil servant? Have you been forgiven much, but you can't forgive other people? You see, at the end of the day, I think our problem is a problem of, of limitedness. We can't show mercy because we don't have a big enough God who actually gives us the mercy we're looking for. See, there's a way you can live in this world that you can be forgiven and you can even seek to be holy. But every day when you leave, every Sunday when you leave this service, you still take home with you an unmerciful God. Richard Rohr wants you to listen to this. He said, I once saw God's mercy as patient, benevolent tolerance, a kind of grudging forgiveness. Stop there. Can you relate to that? Like, can you relate to like, he forgave me, but like, uh, he gritted his teeth when he did it. Like, he forgave me, but I was a big hassle. Much like the person out on the street is a big hassle. Much like my spouse is a big hassle. I forgive them, but uh, I grit my teeth about it. So we end up projecting on God how we interact with other people. Let's move on. But now mercy has become for me God's very self-understanding 
a loving allowing, a willing breaking of the rules by the one who made the rules, a wink and a smile, a firm and joyful taking of our hand while we clutch at the sins and gaze at God in desire and disbelief. A lifetime of received forgiveness allows you to become mercy. That's the beatitude. You become forgiveness because it's the only thing that makes sense to you, the only thing that's alive within you. Mercy becomes your energy and your meaning. Friends, do you have a God this big? Like, I know we worship a God this big with words on the screen and in the text. There's a difference between, though, the God you talk about and the God you take home with you. Do you have a God that big that you take home with you? Is He lacking in mercy? Has your God, how you see God, Yahweh in Scripture, has it been defined by the circumstances of others around you, by how they treated you, by authority figures? Maybe so. And those are things we have to work through together, but we can't work through it together until you tell the truth about your life, which is why we talk about, you know, your feelings and truth. Like, it's not just hogwash. We're not just giving filler here on Sunday mornings. If you don't want to talk about your experiences and your story, you're going to keep projecting on God who you think He is because of those people. And if you're going to be merciful the way Jesus talks about it, you're going to need a bigger God, one who truly is merciful, one who truly is generous with His resources and generous with His heart, not holding back. So here's how I want to land this. Uh, Recently, just in the last day or two, Jamin, one of our elders, the guy that I'm sure can't forgive his wife more than seven times. I'm joking. So, nobody else laughed. That was really serious. I'm sorry. So, (laughs) don't go on the fly, Robin. Um, He was passing around an article for the elders to read and consider. There were two stories that came out in the last week, one in NPR News and one in the Washington Post. And the one in the NPR News was a a story about a, a, a very poor family living in West Zambia who the, the government had taken this initiative, initiative to, to basically give a stipend of money, no strings attached, to families uh, in need. And the story plays this out. It was just something they were trying out. And how it happens in the story is this family took the money and then started their own family business. They multiplied the money, and they started making mead rats. I mean, reed, mead rats. Reed mats. Mead rats. I'm on a roll this morning. <laughs> Reed mats. And they started going across the river and, and selling these, these mats and started doubling their income, tripling their income, and now a- actually able to provide for their family. The other article that was interesting that we were looking at from the Washington Post was a study. And of course, the news is going to highlight what they want, but I just still think it's interesting and worth noting. The study was around um, laziness among the people who are poor in our society, and that do poor people deserve generosity? Do they deserve generosity? However you want to define that, okay? Whether it's a system you set up and they come into there and they get degrees and build their life back, or whether you give them money on the street, it doesn't matter. Either way, both sides. Do they deserve that? And what they noted was this. They had atheists, right? They had agnostics and they had Christians. That was their survey. I'm sure there was a setup to some degree, but listen. 
Two-thirds of the response that said people do not deserve help because they are lazy, and they are lazy, and therefore they are in poverty, two-thirds of the responses came from Christians. That the response was simply this, that if you're lazy, if you're poor, it means you're lazy, and therefore, like, my generosity can only go so far with you. Two-thirds of the responses were from Christians. What is going on? Like, what has happened in our society and in our world that we would have those kind of responses? How disconnected can we really be from the Jesus we find here in the Gospels that that be our response? I'm not saying, sure, I'm sure there's laziness, this is part of it, but at the end of the day, it's not your job to get someone to add up or own up before you pony up. It's not your job to get someone to add up or own up before you pony up. That's not how it works in the Bible. The Bible works this way. You couldn't add up, and you couldn't own up, and guess who ponied up? That's right. That's grace, that's gospel, that's reality, and that's what we live out of. So now, we seek to leverage our lives to be the kind of people that go to those who can't add up and own up, and we go, come with me. I got a God big enough for you. Come with me. I got a kingdom big enough for you. Come be a part of this thing that I didn't even deserve, and you could be a part of. And listen, friends, it doesn't simply have to be someone on the street. It could be someone. Listen, when we go back to what Bonhoeffer said, it's those who are dealing with the shame of life, those who are dealing with all kind of unmerciful events. This isn't just about subjugated or privileged. You could be privileged and still in ways be subjugated in life through the ladder of success, whatever it may be. But at base, at the base, it starts with those who can't care for themselves. And we step in, and we take on their shame, and we take on their plight, and we go, there's a mercy big enough for all of us here. Come join in. I'm going to end with this passage. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm just going to put it on the screen for you to read. Starting at verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Notice this, as it is written, this is from Psalm 112, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now, let's stop there for a second. I need you to see something here. They're pulling from the Old Testament, Paul is. He says, God has what? Distributed freely. God is generous. He has gone after the poor. And it says, His righteousness endures forever. I got a word I want you to see here. The word for righteous, righteousness in the Old Testament, it's this word, zodic. Everybody say, zodic. This word in Hebrew means a righteous one, a righteous and merciful one. Zodics in the Old Testament were attributed to people like Moses and Joseph to David. They were heroes of the faith who exuded righteousness and mercy in times of need. Now, keep that in mind, because that's what Paul is referencing, that we have a God who was a Zodic, who stepped in and brought us righteousness. He stepped in and brought us mercy. Let's finish this out. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of what? Your righteousness. He's not playing around here. You will be enriched in every way 
to be generous in every way. You will be made righteous by the Zadok to be generous in every way. And these people who you're generous to, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes, listen, from your confession of the gospel of Christ, so your words, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. You were met in your poverty by a Zodic, by someone who said, let me take that on for you. And you were given privileged in this world. Listen, it's not a wrong thing that you're a part of the .001% in the existence of human history. If you're an American, you're born American, doesn't matter where you land, middle class, whatever it may be, you are a very privileged person. But don't you see, you've just been set up by Jesus to actually now leverage that for those who aren't. That's not a shameful thing that you're privileged, but it is going to be a bad thing if you quit ignoring that and not using your platform for others now to get a hold of this thing. You were rescued by the Zodic so that you now could be a righteous person, a Zodic for other people. Early this week, Becky Forrester, Becky doesn't know I'm going to do this, Becky Forrester emailed me. They home, her and Charlie, they homeschool their kids, and, and they have a big chalkboard in their house where they put messages on there. I want to show you the message they put up this week. She emailed me and said, a few weeks ago in your sermon, something just stuck with me, and I had to put it up on the wall for us to look at. It's, it's not, the, it's not the, um, the German they're teaching their children, obviously, by Martin Luther. It's not that. I have no idea what that's trying to say there. I'm sure it's really good. It's the thing that's big and colorful. You are the good news. Say it with me. You are the good news. Say it again. You are the good news. You are the Zodic. You are the righteous person. And guess what? There's an eschatological, a future reality that's always with the Beatitudes. Last week when Jamin preached on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? A righteous person, they will what? Be filled. And guess what comes next? Blessed are the generous ones, the ones who are righteous, who step in because they have been given that by Jesus. And guess what, friends? The more you live this way, you get it back in spades, man. Like you get more of this stuff. It's mercy upon mercy upon mercy. You never run out of it. So what does it mean now? That means that we have a God who isn't limited, who is generous, and so therefore I'm going to be generous because guess what? He's still generous. He wants to be generous to me. You don't give to get. You give because you've been given to, and you want to give more and more of it. So this morning, now that we come to the table, here's what I'm asking you to do. Come this morning ready to partake of your own righteous one who gives to you so you can leave here and give to others. And if you're convicted, that's okay. I am too. What does it mean for us to make those shifts and decisions to be merciful and generous in our resources in our heart? Let's pray. So, Father, we come now and we ask that you would allow us to partake of your table through Jesus, that we would be met with one who truly is righteous and loving, benevolent, generous to us, merciful to us. And whatever we have to bring to you, we know that you can take that on so that we can go out of here and proclaim a gospel big enough for the world to want. In Jesus' name, amen.